0: Uh, today, we're in the fifth of uh, seven of the uh, letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, the seven churches. Revelation chapter 3 is where we're at today, verse 7. Here we go. And the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, <clears throat> The words of the Holy One, the, the true One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, we thank you for a place to worship today. God, I thank you, Father, you've given us such an open door in our community to share the gospel, that we have such freedom to speak truth and to proclaim truth. God, I thank you for that. Thank you, Father, for a place to worship that's air-conditioned and uh, nice seats. And God, thank you that we're not being attacked. We're not being attacked physically, at least. God, thank you for all of those blessings. We do pray for our sister church in, in India. Just asking, God, that you give them grace, you give them strength, give them courage, God, that they would not back off from their mission of proclaiming Jesus to their community. Father, speak to us today. I pray that we'd hear... And obey your truth in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we were in the chapter 3, verse 1, the church of Sardis. And Jesus had nothing good, no commendation, no compliment for this church. Today, the church of Philadelphia is the opposite. Jesus has no rebuke. Okay, This is one of two churches in which there is no rebuke for the church of Philadelphia. Now, the other church in which there is no rebuke is the church of Smyrna. Okay, That was back in chapter 2, verse 8. So these churches have in common that Jesus says no, no rebuke. There's no, you're doing this wrong and you do this different. None of that. Now, the other thing that they have in common is that they were both churches facing opposition. Okay? that's going to be very important. Okay, so hold that in your mind. Both these churches to which Jesus gives no rebuke were churches that were facing opposition. Now, they were facing the same opposition. So in Philadelphia here. You'll notice he says, uh, verse nine, behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I'll make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I've loved you. So these people that are slandering, hurting them, Jesus says, look, I'm gonna gonna make them, there's gonna be a time where they're gonna know that you had the truth, okay? Now, who are these synagogue of Satan, folks? Well, go to Smyrna. So chapter two, verse nine He says, I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you're rich in the slander of those who say that they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Same group of people, same type of people, okay? Verse 10, what were they doing? Well, they were slandering. That's what verse 9 says. They were slandering. They were lying about the church. Look at verse 10. Don't fear where you're about to suffer. So the church is suffering. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison. They were being imprisoned. He says, you'll be tested for 10 days and you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death. Some of them were dying, and I'll give you the crown of life, okay? So we, we know what's happening here. These folks, these Jewish people probably, that's why he calls it the synagogue of Satan, these Jewish people who were not true Jews, but they were, they were rather just worldly people who were Jewish, and they were, they were attacking the Christians. They were attacking them with slander, with suffering, with tribulation, with, uh, with, with imprisonment, and with death, okay? So they're attacking Smyrna. Same type of people in Philadelphia are attacking the church there. So this is a church facing opposition. Now, what are they opposed to? Well, they're opposed to the mission of the gospel. Okay. How do I know that? Because nobody is ever opposed to private Christianity. Okay. You you ever hear people say, well, I I believe, but I just keep it to myself. I have it way down deep in my heart. Okay. Okay. In other words, I don't don't tell anybody the truth about Jesus. I don't ever proclaim Jesus. I don't ever talk about Jesus. I don't ever share Jesus. It's just all a private Christian. Well, hey, you're safe, okay? Nobody's ever going to oppose you. Nobody's ever going to tear the roof off of your church, okay? If that's what you have, because you don't have the mission of God, okay? But these folks were people who were keeping Jesus' word and not denying his name, okay? That's what verse 8 says. It says, I know your works. Behold, I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. And notice this, into verse 8. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. My name. Okay, we've already talked a lot about what it is to, to proclaim Jesus' name in these other letters. Remember in Pergamon? Remember this guy? You remember Annapos? Chapter 2, verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. Okay, what does that mean? They were proclaiming Jesus' name. They were living out the gospel. You did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. Who's Antipas? My faithful witness. What does it mean to proclaim Jesus' name? It means to be a faithful witness, okay? A witness is someone who testifies about what Jesus has done. All right, and so what's the mission of this church to which Jesus commends them for keeping? They are on mission, and that they are proclaiming and living out and speaking the name of Jesus. Now, Stop right there for a second. What does that mean to speak the name of Jesus, okay? Well, it's not just to say his name verbally. I'll guarantee you there will be people all over Woodward, Oklahoma who will say the name of Jesus. They will make the sound Jesus, okay, this week, and they are not doing what they're supposed to be doing, okay? They're not living out the mission of God, okay? The name of God is his character. Remember Psalm 910, we looked at it last week. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. What does that mean? What's the name of Jesus? It's who he is. It's what he's done, Look through, your new, look through the Gospel of John. In the Gospel of John, it says Jesus, it says his name is bread of life, good shepherd, the way, the truth, and the life, the resurrection of life. What is all that saying? It's saying it's his character, right? And so to not deny the name of Jesus is to proclaim and live out who he is. That he's truth and life and he's the first and best of beings. He's Savior and King and Lord. He's satisfying. He's the bread of life. He's the treasure with giving everything for. He's good and glorious. He's full of love and mercy. That's what it means to proclaim his name. And so this church, this, this Philadelphian church, was a church that was, was faithful and faithful. In, in not denying the name of Jesus. They were proclaiming, speaking the truths of Jesus Christ. They weren't denying his name. What does it mean to deny his name? Well, it could mean someone says, do you know who Jesus is? And you're like, no, I don't know him. Okay, But more often, it is simply we don't, we don't speak the name of Jesus. When, when there's an answer to life and we don't tell people, we're denying his name. We're not proclaiming who he is. When people need to know about what he's done, we're not telling them. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe, maybe you don't want to bring it up. Maybe it's unpopular. Maybe it's risky. All of that is to deny the name of Jesus. But this church, Philadelphia, the church of Philadelphia, was faithful, persevering, in proclaiming the name of Jesus Christ to their community. So, what does Jesus say to a church that is facing opposition in its mission? Okay, remember in each one of these churches, depending on what they're going through, Jesus shows a part of himself, right? So, think about this. What what does a church need? They're, They're out, a church that's out in their community, and when they go to work... They're they're telling people about Jesus when they're in their their neighborhood and they're talking to their neighbor in the front yard. They're bringing up who he is, what he's done with their family. They're discipling their family. They're meeting in restaurants and around town, talking to people about the scriptures, sharing the truth, and they're meeting opposition. People are combating that. People are tearing the roof off of their church. People are are doing things like that. What does that kind of church need? What do they need to see about Jesus? Look at verse 7. Here's what Jesus tells them. This is who I am. Jesus says, this is who I am. The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. All right? Two big things there. First of all, Jesus tells them, I am the Holy One, the true one. Now, one of the things I think, one of the reasons I think he says this is because the opposition they're facing is coming from the Jews. That Holy One and true one, those are Old Testament references to God, okay? Isaiah 40, okay? Isaiah 40 is one of the coolest chapters in the Bible because basically God says, who are you going to compare me to, all right? Who are you going to compare me to? Who are you going to say that I'm like, all right? He starts out in, uh, I'll just kind of give you a survey here. Verse 15, it says, Behold, the nations. Are you going to compare me to the nations? Are you going to compare me to, 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 to the riches of the nations, the power of the nations, the armies of the nations? Verse 15. The nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. God says, You try to compare the nations to my power? Man, they're like the dust on the They don't even measure. You can't even record. How, they're, they're insignificant. Verse 22. God says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. God says, you're gonna compare me to the rest of the people on the earth? You're, you're like grasshoppers compared to me. Verse 22, he says, I stretch out the heavens like a curtain. I spread them out like a tent to dwell in. Verse 23, I'm the one who brings princes to nothing, who makes the rulers of the earth to emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely are they are, do they stem, they take root in the earth. I like this part. When he blows on them, they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. God says, you you compare me to the rest of the world? He says, "I, I put the rest of the world in my hand, and I go like this, and they're gone. I blow on them, and they're gone. Okay, And then verse 25 sums it up. To whom will you then compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. You get that? And so Jesus over here is telling this church, hey, remember, I'm the Holy One. All these people that are against you, all these people that are opposed to you, they're like grasshoppers. They're like stubble. There's something I blow in my hand, and it goes away, okay? So he wants them to be reminded of that. And then the second thing he tells them, and this is where we're going we're gonna to camp out for a while. He says, I'm the one who has the keys, okay? See that in verse 7? The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts... And no one opens. All right. Now to understand this letter, what you have to understand is there's lots of imagery in this about doors, open doors, shut doors, and keys that open the doors. Okay. Lots of imagery about that. Think about this. What are doors for? Doors grant you access somewhere, right? So, so have you ever been outside a store and what you wanted was inside and it's locked, right? You can't get in. All right. You can't get in. Or maybe, have you ever been inside a church like this and you really didn't want to be here? You just wanted to get out. But the only way out is through the door, right? How would you feel if we locked the doors? Would that, would that be scary for you? All right. So right, doors grant access. All right. So when Jesus is talking about doors that open and close, he's talking about granting access to, to people, to the kingdom, Okay. And locked doors, here's the key locked doors are very frustrating because we can't get to where we want to be. We can't do our mission. I've never rescued my wife from a robber or a kidnapper, some kind of valiant thing like that. But what I have done all throughout our marriage is I have rescued my wife from locked car doors. I've done that. I keep a set in my office, I keep a set of her keys in my own car. And I, I have time and again rescued my wife. The the best one was uh, when when the kids were little. Haddon was just a baby, and she she was had a daycare at that time. So I think Trevor Goodwin was there, Blake uh, Blake Alexander was there, maybe Aslan Cook, several of the kids in our church. And she had she had buckled them all into their car seats, okay. And then Haddon had the keys. Haddon always liked the keys, okay. So he had them. He's slobbering on them, biting them, you know. And and she had she grabs them from him. She's she's like buckling them all in. She reaches up, starts the van, turns on the air conditioner so that that they'll start to get cool. Then she steps out of the van and closes the big door, and then she realizes that he had been pressing the button. So she closed the door. They all lock, okay? She's come out of the house. The house is locked. Now the van is locked. All the daycare kids are in the van, and it's locked, all right? So she goes to the neighbor, frantic. She calls me. Here I come. You know, hero. Hero saves the day. Why? i got the keys, right? I've got the keys. What what do I have the ability to do? Her mission is inside. What she's supposed to be taking care of is inside. She can't get to them, but I've got the keys. This last week, I came in Monday. About every 10 years or so, whether I need to or not, I clean off my desk. And so I came in Monday and I just—I don't know—I—I I, I think I just didn't want to do anything else. I was kind of no, it's Tuesday because I just done my grandma's funeral on Monday. So it was Tuesday, so I came in and I and I started cleaning my desk. And so Paula comes in. Paula, Paula cleans way too much. I clean too little. Paula cleans too much. Okay, so I came in. She sees me cleaning my desk, and she takes that as a cue to help. Okay. <laughs> I didn't ask because she takes it as a cue. So she starts going in in the closet. She starts tackling my, she, she's upset with my closet because she says, she, you know, someone's going to kill themselves trying to get in there. The credit card stuff's in there and she's like, you know, side so stuff all over. So all morning long, and again, I did not ask her to do this. All morning long, she's pulling out all my stuff. What do you want done with this, pastor? What do you want done with this? You know, you need to take this home, pastor. I'm like, I don't know what to do with it. That's why it's in the closet. You know, if I knew where it went. I would put it there. It doesn't have a place. That's why it's piled in there, you know. She's bringing all this stuff out. She's still got a pile, you know, in, in the office right now. She said, you need to take this home. I'm not going to take it home. I'm going to leave it right there, and we'll eventually go back in the closet. So, anyway, that kind of happened all morning. I was a little bit irritated. So, when I left, I locked her in the uh, the office. So, like, like. I'm the only one that has a key to the, to the glassed area. I'm the one that carries a key to it. And so I just went ahead and locked that and said, I'm going for lunch. And then she can't get out, right? I mean, she's locked in. And, and Michelle was really disturbed. Michelle's a real kind-hearted person, you know. And she was really disturbed that I just went ahead and left. I just went to lunch, you know. But what I knew, I did know this, was that in the office there's a big folder with all the master keys in it. I knew she could get out. She just had to go try every one of those until she could find one to get out. And she got out. Listen, what does Jesus tell this church? I've got the keys. You see how that is? You know how frustrating it is to be locked in, to be locked out, to have no access. Okay? He's telling this church, I've got the keys. In Isaiah twenty-two, twenty-two 22 is where this comes from. And it's, it's a messianic kind of uh, a picture there. And, and it was actually something that happened in, in the book of Isaiah where Eliakim was a servant who was given the keys. He was given authority over, over, the, 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 messi- over the kingly office, okay? The office of king. And what Jesus is saying is, I have authority. Look at Revelation 118. You remember this? Went through it a couple months ago. Jesus says, in the, He says, Fear not, I'm the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. I have the keys. You hear this? I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus, Jesus has, he, he controls the entrance into death and Hades, into the afterlife. Okay? Jesus has the keys of the kingdom. And when Jesus opens a door, nobody can shut it. When he opens a door in India for the gospel and people are being saved, nobody can shut that door. You can tear the roof off the church. Nobody can shut it when he opens a door into your family or into your neighborhood. Nobody can shut it. When he shuts the door, nobody can open it. When he opens the door, nobody can shut it. Jesus Christ has the keys to the kingdom. And so now he tells his church, this is who I am. I have the keys of the kingdom. And then in verse 8, he says, I know your works. And behold, I have set before you an open door. An open door, which no one's able to shut. Jesus says, I put in front of you an open door. Now, what does that mean? Well, I want to show you from the scriptures, okay? So let me give you four passages in the New Testament in which we see this. And it's very clear in each one of them what he's talking about, okay? So first one is 1 Corinthians 16, 9. 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9. We're going to read 8 and 9. So this is Paul. Paul's giving his travel itinerary. And he says in verse 8, But I will stay in Ephesus. So Ephesus is a town. He says, I'm going to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. All right, did you hear that? He says "He says a wide door for what? Effective work. All right, now what is Paul's work? You guys know that? What's Paul's work? He's, he's sharing the gospel, right? He's he's telling people about Jesus. He's proclaiming the name of Jesus. He's building disciples. He's meeting with men. He's teaching them the scriptures. He's building them up in their faith. That is Paul's work. And he says here that right now in Ephesus, a wide door for effective work. Now, what's effective work? It's when, it's when you're sharing the gospel and people are responding. It's when you're meeting with men and people are being built up in, your, in their faith. It's when, it's when you're sharing truth and people are responding to that truth, okay? So an effective work is a work in which people are responding to the Word of God. So here, an open door is a season or a place, a church, a ministry, a family in which the Word is going forth And there's a responsiveness to it, okay? Now notice he says, and there are many adversaries, okay? The reason I want to point that out is a lot of people think an open door means it's easy. It doesn't mean it's easy, okay? An open door doesn't mean there's no opposition. It doesn't mean there's no problems or no persecution or no pain. No, on the contrary, many times when there is an open door, there are lots of adversaries. There's an open door right now in India. What does that mean? It means people are coming to Christ. They're coming in by, by the family. They're being baptized in the river publicly while their Muslim and Hindu neighbors look on and, and, and spitefully accuse them. Okay, but they're, 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 they're receiving the word. They're responding to the word even, even though there's opposition and adversaries. Saint 2 Corinthians 2.12. So turn two pages, I think, or one page in your Bible. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, 12, when I came to preach in Troas, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. So Paul simply says, look, I was at Troas and what was he doing there? Preaching the gospel of Christ, okay? And he says, a door was open for me in the Lord. Okay, what does he mean by that? He's preaching the gospel. People are responding. There's opportunity there's opportunity for him to preach the gospel. There, people are, are listening. People are hearing. Go to Colossians 4.3. Colossians 4.3 says this. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word. Okay, now what's the open door for? The word, right? What's the word? Gospel truth. Scriptural truth, okay? So there's an open door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. All right, so there's an open door for the word of God, the making clear of the gospel. So so what is an open door? It is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Look in Acts chapter fourteen, verse twenty seven. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together, and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. What's an open door there? People are responding in faith, an open door of faith, right? So how does faith come? The Word of God goes. People respond in, in belief, in embracing it. And so an open door is an opportunity to proclaim the gospel with power of the Holy Spirit. is bringing about fruit and and, and responsiveness and faith in people who hear. And my friends, we have open doors. Do we not? We have open doors. We, We have opportunity in this country right now to share the gospel. I know many of you are not happy in the direction of our country and in the direction of our culture. But let me tell you what. When, when, you can, when you can take a bike ride early in the morning, and you can, you can come back home and turn on your television set as you're getting ready to take your shower. This happened to me Saturday in the morning, early morning, and on the news is Randall Gabriel on Channel 4 News talking about the Ten Commandments. That's an open door. I mean, we live in a place where God has given us opportunity. So here's my question, church. Are are we faithful? What what did it say about the church at Philadelphia? I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. We have an open door. Have you denied his name? Have you proclaimed his name? Are you speaking his name? Are you telling people about Jesus? Are you telling them about what he's done? Now, I know what you're going to say. Pastor, I, I don't know enough. I, I, don't, I, I can't speak well enough. Nobody wants to listen to me. What, what are you articulating in all those phrases? You're articulating that you don't have enough power, right? You know what you're saying? I lack power, right? I, I don't have enough power. I lack the resources, okay? Well, notice what Jesus says to the church of Philadelphia. Verse 8, I know your works. build. I've set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. All right? Don't you hate it when someone takes away your excuse before you can use it? You know? That's terrible, isn't it? What is Jesus saying? Yeah, I know. He knows what we're going to say. Well, I got little power, though, God. We, we're, we're a small church. We don't have much money. We don't have much opportunity. We, don't have, we can't speak the gospel well. We don't know. My, whatever your excuse is, you say, I, I know you have little power. That doesn't matter. Why does that not matter? Because who has the keys? Jesus. And when he opens the door, nobody can shut it. When he shuts the door, nobody can open it. Jesus has the key to the, power, to the kingdom. And listen, our success will not come from our own power. If you convince somebody on your own to believe in Jesus, they haven't really believed. If you're the one that twists their arm and convince them to get in the baptistry, it doesn't mean anything, okay? Only the Spirit of God, only the power of the gospel is the power to bring to life. So, let's talk a little bit about having little power. So let's say you're here this morning and you say, I, I would love to be on mission, pastor. I would love to be telling people about Jesus. I would love to be proclaiming who he is, telling people about what he's done, being on mission, making disciples. I'd love to be doing all that, but I don't know enough. I don't know enough. I'm waiting till I know enough. My first question would be, how long have you been a Christian, okay? If you've only been a Christian 10 minutes, I could see somebody saying that. If you've been a Christian 10 years, I, my, my question would be, what have you been doing for 10 years, okay? Um, but really, the big issue is this. Do you know the gospel? Do you know the gospel? Now, hopefully, if you're at Lincoln Avenue, if you, if you were, came, became a Christian here, if you met with our pastors, um, if you were baptized, hopefully you are able to articulate the gospel. One of the things that Pastor Dan does all the time, meets with kids, and one of the, sometimes parents are a little frustrated because they feel like the process isn't going forward fast enough. I had, I had a couple talk to me at Fifth Street over there. Let me tell you our strategy here. If God saves them, hey, we can't do anything to mess them up, okay? But if he hasn't saved them, first of all, we we, want to know that. We want to be able to share the gospel. We want to know where they're at. And anybody who goes up in the baptistry, we want them to be able to articulate the gospel. We want them to be able to share, even if they're a 7-year-old or a 9-year-old or a 12-year-old or a 50-year-old or a 70-year-old. We want them to be able to articulate, what does it mean to be a Christian? What is the gospel? We want them to be able to share that. We want them to be able to, in their own way, in their own words, to be able to say, look, man is broken, we're all sinners, we've all transgressed, we're all lost, going to hell. But God has loved us, and and, and Jesus stepped out of the heavens into human flesh, and he became a man, and he lived a life that we couldn't live. He lived it perfectly. He lived it sinlessly. He was pleasing to God in every way. He showed us by His life and His teachings who God is. And then He he died on the cross for nothing He had done, but for everything we had done. Our sins, our transgressions, our filth, our dirtiness was placed upon Him. And He took that on the cross and He paid the penalty. He, he, He paid the wrath of God for me. He took my wrath. And then he rose from the dead on the third day. And now he offers salvation to all who repent of their sin, change their mind about their sin, turn from their sin, and put their faith in him and him alone. They can be joined to Christ and saved forevermore. We want you to be able to articulate that. You don't, do you have to do it just like I did it? Absolutely not. There's a whole bunch of ways you could, you could articulate the man is a sinner, that Christ is a savior, that he has died to pay the penalty for our sins, that he has risen from the dead, defeating sin, death, and the grave, and that he offers salvation to all who will come and follow him. I, I just said it different than I did before. We want you to be able to articulate the gospel. If you cannot articulate the gospel, and you're like, Pastor, I, I want to I be able to tell people who he is and what he's done, then you, you call your small group leader. And you say, hey, can we, can we get together this week? I want, I want to practice articulating the gospel. I want you to help me articulate the gospel. I want you to call one of our pastors. I want you to text one of us. I want you to call your Sunday school teacher. I want you to whatever. A young boy came forward after Fifth Street and said, Pastor, I want to be able to talk about the gospel. I said, all right, I know your daddy. You tell, go tell your daddy that. You know, uh, Your daddy can articulate the gospel, so you go tell him, and I'll, be, I'll help you too, but I want your dad. I want you to go tell your dad just what you told me because he can help you. We want you to be able to articulate the gospel. Because if you have the gospel, listen to this. Romans 1.16 For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Did you hear that? It's the power of God to salvation. God has infused the gospel with power through His Holy Spirit. And when He opens a door to people's heart and their lives, and they hear the gospel. You say, but pastor, I stutter when I talk. That is excellent. They will listen more closely, okay? You say, pastor, I I stumble around with my words. That is super, because my experience is most people want to be set at ease, and if you give them a slick presentation, they're not at ease. So if you stutter and you mess up your words, you are a lead guy. What are you doing? Get out there. You're perfect for the job. Articulate the gospel. Second excuse I hear a lot. Pastor, I got little power. I don't know all the answers to what people might ask me. Good. I, honestly, if you came here today and said, I know every answer to what anybody's going to ask me, I would say, yeah, you're not the guy to go share the gospel. Okay? Okay. Because you think you know a lot more than you know, all right? Because I don't have all the answers. I, man, I, I mean, for real, I don't, man, I don't know. Why did my kid die of cancer? I don't know. I don't know. Where'd Cain get his wife? I don't know. I think I know, but I don't really know. I don't know. What's your view of the end times, Pastor? You're preaching through Revelation. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, there's a lot of things I don't know. But that does not stop me from telling people about the one who is the answer. You don't have to know the answer to tell people about the one who is the answer, right? And we would not think that in any other realm. Let's say the great apocalypse happens. And there's a great famine in our land, okay? You got nothing to eat. Your neighbors are starving. You went to five funerals last week of people who starved to death. They put them in a shallow grave right outside the backyard. I mean, That's how bad things have gotten. And you're stumbling around Woodward, Oklahoma. There's no gas for cars, so you're on foot. And you take through an alley that you've never been through before, and you come upon a truck. And the, the nicest guy you've ever met gets out of that truck. He smiles. He throws open the back of that truck, and in that truck is all, all the bread that you could ever need. I mean, it's full, top to bottom with bread. He gives you a sack He starts loading you up with bread. I mean, you are in a daze. You cannot believe what is happening. You get all that bread in this huge sack. You carry as much as you can carry all the way home, and you are going to live. You're going to live. You're going to live because you have found bread, okay? Now, let me ask you a real, I mean, I want you to answer this honestly. Would you not tell your neighbors, would you not tell your children would you not tell your parents? Would you not tell your friends? Would you not tell your coworkers about the bread truck because you don't have all the answers about the truck? Would you not tell them? I mean, I mean, let's face it. I mean, you're in such a fog. You, there's a whole lot of things you don't know. You don't know the name of the guy who drives the truck. I mean, you can't believe it. You can't believe you were in such a fog. You were, you were so blown away. You didn't even ask his name. You don't know his name. You don't know whether the bread is whole wheat or white or multigrain or nine-grain honey oat. I mean, you you didn't even look. You were just eating it, you know. I mean, you, you you didn't pay attention, you know. Where was it grown? What kind of wheat was it grown? Is it organic, you know? Was there any fertilizer or pesticide used in growing the wheat or milling it to make the bread? You've got no idea, If anybody asks that question, you're going to be stuck there. You know, I don't know. Is it organic? I don't know. Were there any animals harmed in the making of the bread? You don't know. If you're sharing with the pita guy and they're like, well, were there any animals? You don't know that. You have no idea of knowing the answer to that. I mean, I used to cut wheat for a living, and I can remember a time where I sucked a snake into the header. He was up in the wheat, in a big, big, it was real thick wheat, no joke, I don't know how he got up there, but I ate him right in there. You probably ate a piece of bread with snake in it. You didn't even know it. I mean, we can't answer that question. I don't know. What kind of truck was it? How could you not notice that? What kind of truck was it? Did it run on gas, diesel? Was it eco-friendly? Was it natural gas? Was it solar? You know? What kind of truck? What brand was it? I didn't look. Was it a Ford or a GMC or Kenworth or a Peterbilt or a Mack or a Freightliner? It might have even been a foreign job. A Mercedes. You don't know. You didn't see the front of it. You were in the back getting stuff out. You don't know any. You don't know the answers. So you're going to watch your neighbors die of starvation because you don't know whether it was organic. Is that what you're going to do? Probably not. Right? Honest? Probably not. Probably you're going to say, dude, there's bread. There is bread. And it's free. And the guy said he comes back every day. And he's got all that we need. And it's in this alley. Let me show you. What's his name? I don't know. What kind of truck is it? I don't know. Is it whole grain or onion? Who cares? Do you want to live or not? Isn't that what you're going to do? Now, I mean, I guess if there's some of you here and you, you would say, nope. I would not share with them if I did not know that no animals were harmed in the making. Then I don't know what to say about you. Em. I, for real, I don't know. But I think, I think most of us would tell them where the bread is. Well, what, What's different about what we have in the gospel? There are a couple things that are different. Our bread is better. It gives life everlasting, not just physical life. It brings a joy that no physical bread could ever bring. This, this is not really a made-up illustration. Jesus is the bread of life. He said that about himself, didn't he? So, we have an open door. We have an open door. Do you know all the answers? Nope. Do you know the gospel? I hope so. If you don't, let's get that taken care of this week. Okay? So, what do we do now? Well, we, what's it say? This church is commended... Because they've not denied his name. So what do we do? We we tell people about Jesus. We tell them about his name. So how how does that look? I want to be real specific today. Well, we brag on him. Brag on him. Um, I think a lot of people when you hear tell them about Jesus, you think I don't have a slick sales pitch. Okay, you don't need one. In fact, oftentimes it's detrimental if you have one. Okay, if you if you if you launch into a sales pitch about the gospel, honestly, most people. Most people, if you're a salesman, sorry, but this is true, and you know it's true. Whenever, whenever someone picks up that you're trying to sell them something, what do they do? They take a little bit of a defensive posture, don't they? They begin to back up, right? You got to work all the harder, okay? So here's what I'm saying. If you don't have a sales pitch, sweet. You don't need one. What, what are you doing? You are bragging on Jesus. And there is an abundance to brag on, is there not? I mean, what, has he done anything good? Has he done anything glorious? Has, has he blessed you in any way? Okay, if you're a Christian here today, you ought to have, ought to have a, a whole tank full of ammo, right? To pull out at any time. Man, God's been good. He's so good to me. Here's what he's done. He's so good to me. Man, I, he's done this for me. He's done that for me. I'm just bragging on him. I mean, you brag on your kids. You brag on your, your, your team. You brag on all kinds of stuff. Why not brag on Jesus? Work gospel truth into every conversation. You can do it. Just work it into every conversation. I mean, there's truth about gospel, Bible, and about every topic. Work it in. Share scripture. Here's a great thing to do. Okay, a lot of you have quiet times in the morning, or maybe you have yours in the evening, but you have a time during the day where you. Read a passage of scripture, okay? Every time you read a passage of scripture, pick a truth out, pick a scripture out, pick something out that you can share with somebody that day. Make, it that, make that your goal. I'm gonna share it. You're in Philippians 4. I was in Philippians 4 this week with a, one of my group of guys. Hey, we read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is an easy verse to be able to share with somebody, okay? So you write that down on a little card. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then it's your mission that day. I'm gonna share this with somebody. I'm gonna share it with somebody. You know, but share it with somebody. So um, Robert Dronell, he was supposed to ride bikes with me yesterday. I haven't talked to you about this yet, Robert. He's supposed to show up and ride bikes yesterday. He didn't show up. You know what I should have done? I should have uh, texted Robert and said, man, it was raining, but I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthened me, right? <laughs> we work it in. You say, well, that didn't really fit, Pastor. It doesn't matter. You're sharing truth. That's all you're doing, right? I can do all things. Through Christ who strengthens me. Yeah, you, you go into work, and the boss comes in, and he says, all right, guys, I want you to get all this done by, by today. He leaves, and everybody's like, oh, man, we're never going to get all this done. You're like, hey, guys, you know what I read in the Bible this morning? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so guys, I'm just going to trust God. You say, well, but they'll look at me funny. Yes, they probably will. I looked at people like that funny, and then I became a Christian because of people like that. They're looking at you funny for one reason or another. It might as well be a good reason. (laughs) Find somebody who wants to know the scriptures and then teach them about Jesus. Others of you are going to say, nobody wants to listen to me. I'm a nobody. I'm not popular. I don't have any influence. Verse 8. Know your works, build up set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power. I mean, that's true. Hey, there's a whole bunch of people in Woodward that I've been trying to share the gospel with for 15 years and I've not had any success. I've got a neighbor on my block. He just doesn't want to he doesn't want to talk to me about it. I've tried. That's okay. Maybe somebody else is for him. Right? There's a whole lot of people who will talk. I mean, I mean, the reality is, we may never have an influence with everybody. I mean, man, I'm convinced I'll probably never get to share the gospel with President Obama or Beyonce or Oprah or Hillary Clinton or Tom Brady or Lady Gaga or Floyd Mayweather. I probably, I probably just won't get to. Man, I, I would love for Justin Bieber to come to our man up on Wednesday. I think that would be really good for him. He's probably not. Maybe, but maybe somebody else has an influence with them, Okay. And you don't, probably. But who do you have an influence? And you're like, Pastor, I'm telling you, nobody. Okay, here's what I would tell you. You're not serving people then. Honestly, I I, I think that's probably true of some people who would say I have an an influence with nobody. The reason is you're not being kind. You're not being generous. You're not being loving. You're not caring about people. You're not asking about people's lives. Okay, because you do that enough There's needy people in Woodward, Oklahoma by the truckloads who, as you care for them, you're going to have a wide door to share the gospel. So, we got little power. That's okay. There's great power in the gospel, right? A couple promises here uh, real quick. Um, there's a bunch of them. We're not going to have time to cover very many of them. Verse 9, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they're Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them uh, come and bow down before your feet that they may learn that I've loved you. Some people just relate this with the whole Philippians uh, 2, you know, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I actually think he's referring back to Isaiah. I think he's switching around some Jew-Gentile stuff there that's really cool that I don't have time to talk about. You can ask me later if you're interested in that. Um, Verse 10 is kind of one I want to talk about for just a second, just because I I think many of you are going to bypass this one, and I don't want you to do that, okay? So verse 10 says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, some of you uh, are going to immediately jump to the end times with that one, okay? You're going to take that one, you're going to say, oh, he's talking about the great tribulation, and many of you have a conviction that believers will not go through the Great Tribulation. And so you're going you're to gonna kind of put that verse in that, in that stack of verses that, that you support that with. And, and you won't think anything more, more about it. I don't want you to do that. Now, I'm not trying to change your view on that. If you believe that, that's great, whatever. Um, I'm not trying to change your view. But, but I, I, am, I would like for you to look at this verse a little differently, though, because I, I actually don't think that's the best interpretation of that verse. Here's why. If that's what that verse says, then really it didn't mean anything to the Phil- Philadelphian Christians. Okay? So these are folks that are taking it on the chin. These are folks like our Indian brothers who are getting the, the, the top of their church ripped off, okay? These are folks that are, are being persecuted. Some are being put to death like in Smyrna, okay? And so for Jesus say, to say, because you've kept my word about patient endurance, I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. And what he means is the end great tribulation that's going to come in thousands of years. Well, that really doesn't mean anything to those Christians then, right? I mean, they're not going through it either way. I mean, it would be it would be like me saying, hey, if you'll wash my car, I'll give you a million dollars in a thousand years. Well, it kind of takes away from it, doesn't it? You know, Uh, and, and so I struggle that that's what this means. And then there's some other reasons. But here's the biggie. Okay, the biggie is that that Greek phrase. Okay, it's an interesting phrase that says, I will keep you from the hour of trial. That's used one other time in the exact form. It's used some other times in, 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 in other different forms. But in its exact form, it's used by Jesus in John 17. Listen to it. John 17:15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now, what does Jesus mean? Who's he talking about, first of all? He's talking about the apostles, right? Disciples. You could probably broaden it out to believers. And what does he say? He says, Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. He says, we need to leave them there. They're going to be salt. They're going to be light. They're going to be preachers of the gospel. They're going to be at work for the kingdom. But I ask, Lord, that you keep them from the evil one. Now, what does keep them from the evil one mean there? Does that mean that they'll never suffer? Well, Peter was crucified upside down. James was beheaded. John was exiled to the island of Patmos. All the other... 11, were martyred, but John. I don't think that's what it meant. What does he mean? Keep you from the evil one. I think he means, I'm going to, Father, keep their faith, right? Guard their faith, protect their faith. Keep them from, from being, remember what Satan wanted to do to Peter? Want to sift you like, like wheat. But Jesus said, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith would not fail. I think that's what he's talking about. And so here's the encouragement for us and for our brothers in India that as we go out with the gospel, as we see these open doors in front of us, and as we step through, and as we meet opposition and struggle, I think Jesus is saying, guys, guys, if you'll be faithful, man, I'll keep you. I'll guard you. I'll protect you. There's trial coming, man. It's coming. It's going to come on the whole world. But I, but I will guard your faith. To the end. A couple other things real quick, and we're done. I'm coming soon, verse 11. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And look at this. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes out from my God, out of heaven, and my own name. God's going to put his own name on you. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. God's going to write a bunch of stuff on you, isn't he? It's kind of cool to think about. He's going to put his name on you. He's going to put the name of the new Jerusalem on you. He's going to give you a new name. He's going to mark you as his own. What open door do you have in front of you, church? What open door? What open door do you have for the gospel? God's put it before you. When he opens it, nobody can shut it. Step forward in obedience. Let's be obedient as we pray, okay? Father, thank you for the open doors that you've given us. Thank you, Father, that you've, you've given us open doors for the gospel right here in our community in Guatemala, around the world, God, thank you for those opportunities. Thank you for those open doors. And God, I pray that we would not make excuses, but we would make disciples. God, I know we don't know all the answers. God, I don't know all the answers. God, I know that you're the answer. And I pray that you would, you would enable us to make that known, to proclaim that truth to our world. In Jesus' name, amen.